Welcome to the Horror Matchmaker Podcast. I'm Matt, and I'm your host for a unique exploration of horror through comparison, contrast, and ranking of paired films. Each film will be ranked on the same scale of categories against the other film, including script, special effects, and cinematography. This episode, we have a match between A Nightmare on Elm Street and Hellraiser. So some quick intros here. Uh, why these two, any biases or history, uh, before we jump into the actual match. And I've got Aaron rejoining us this week. Hello. And one of the reasons is, per episode one, when we talked about our first kiss with horror, hers was A Nightmare on Elm Street. So I thought it appropriate that she join us for this match. Yes. And... So start with why uh, for this matchup, Nightmare on Elm Street versus Hellraiser. Uh, for me, both of these films do a really good job of blurring lines between reality and fantasy. Uh, the one fantasy is intruding on innocence, the other is obsessively sought out, but both are deadly. I think both of these films re uh, give us great iconic villains that are showcased with just some awesome special effects. Uh, biases. Uh, you could probably tell by now I love both of these films. Uh, I've got a history with both of these films. I remember seeing Hellraiser in the theater. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was one of my earliest horror experiences that I recall, uh, specifically a sleepover that my sister had. Um, and I have a particular soft spot for Nightmare on Elm Street. I think you would call it one of my comfort horror picks. I can put it on and kind of just forget everything else um, and feel better. Uh, but I do love both of these films. Um, so, Aaron, what about you? What do you bring to each of these films? Well, of course I do have... I did have the bias against the Nightmare on Elm Street movie because it was the first movie that really scared me. Um... But I'm no longer scared of that movie, so watching it as an adult was interesting. It wasn't scary anymore. Yeah, and the other movie, um, no biases. Like, I've seen bits and pieces of it and watched a show maybe talking about it and thought that I knew the movie, but... Uh, when watching it, I definitely learned that I did not know the movie, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, well, we are going to move right along and jump right into the match, and we're going to start with story and script, and we will begin with A Nightmare on Elm Street, so quick synopsis. Uh, before we get into that, Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984, directed by Wes Craven, one hour, 31 minutes long, uh, box office total of 25.5 million. Uh, so story and script, uh, tagline, if Nancy doesn't wake up screaming, she won't wake up at all. Teenagers in the small town in Ohio uh, begin dying apparently in their sleep. A cop's daughter, Nancy Thompson, traces the cause to child molester Fred Krueger, who was burned alive by angry parents years before. Kruger has now come back in the dreams of his killer's children, claiming their lives as his revenge. Nancy and her boyfriend Glenn must devise a plan to lure the monster out of the realm of nightmares and into the real world. And that is certainly a concise synopsis of this film. So again, this was written by Wes Craven, not just directed by him. And it was inspired by a real-life story from Asia. Uh, it's really easy to find if you want to look into it, but there was a spate of teenagers and young adults dying in their sleep in Asia. I believe it was the Philippines, might have been Indonesia. And then one of the last few to die had said to his parents, I'm afraid to fall asleep and that if I fall asleep, I won't wake up. And that in fact happened. That um, is 
really interesting. Yeah, and it's I a little wonder, terrifying too, right? Yeah. I wonder if it was like carbon monoxide poisoning or something. But it, No, they never, as far as I could tell, they never were able to come up with a cause of death that was, could be pinned down to something like that. But I again, this was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, the other thing I found interesting here is that Wes Craven kept dream journals since college. And he's oh. quoted as saying, horror films are the nightmares of a culture. And the more that I listened and got into Wes Craven through this movie, I really have to ask, was he meant to make this movie all along? He's obviously got this uh, maybe obsession with dreams, but he's got this fascination with them at the least, and he's been keeping dream journals since college. Yeah. And then in 1984, he releases this, uh, what for me is a masterpiece. But Um, just that quote that he said that nightmare like horror movies are the nightmares of society horror films are the nightmares of a culture yeah yeah what that is deep that's really deep cool very cool and um so the movie starts the opening credits scene actually shows us the construction of freddy's glove which i think is a nice introduction straight into tina's dream um and then we get Maybe one of the early fake-outs in horror. I know that Scream did it later down the road. Same director. Um, Tina almost set up as the final girl here in the first 20 minutes or so of this film. Uh, and we get her intro, but we get introduced to the other characters through her. So it kind of sets her up on that final girl arc. Uh, maybe playing with the viewer's reality a little bit, uh, since she's the first one to die. Um, but this movie plays with reality and fantasy divide from the jump. And it it's not always a clear delineation between the two. And I think that helps keep the viewer engaged and a little bit disoriented. Um, this dividing line's crossed several times within the film. And some of them, you know, injury and dream, you're injured when you wake. Uh, pulling the hat and then Freddy later from the dream. Um, Nancy's phone call preceding... Glenn's death here Freddy crosses that divide because I'm pretty sure Nancy's awake when the phone that she tore off the wall rings um so Freddy's crossing that line there for one of the first times in the film and as far as the story and the concept I think it's really creative and original uh we don't get anything like this much anymore uh and yet it's a concept that I think is believable throughout the film for the most part Um, The teens certainly accept the threat more willingly than other films and the reactions and response that we see in them. And this also goes along with some character development and arcs, which help bring it all to life for me. I think pretty much throughout the 130 or 91 minutes that the story flow remains consistent. Uh, There's not a lot here that seems extraneous or not needed. Uh, The exposition is spread throughout the film pretty well. It starts with the opening scene showing the glove construction, uh, and that exposition covers both the reality of Elm Street and the dream side, i.e. when Glenn is referring to dream skills in the conversation on the bridge. So some other Mm -hmm. takeaways. Uh, You know, one of the conversations in the horror community pretty often revolves around the final girl, and I think... Elm Street does a good job of setting Nancy up as the penultimate final girl. Um, I know in my own tier ranking of those, she's probably right at the top. She begins looking for answers immediately. She doesn't ever sit back on her laurels and wait for things to happen to her. She seems to grasp the enormity of the threat when others don't. She comes around pretty quickly to realizing her own strength and then how to put it to use. Uh, And again, she brings the fight to Freddy and rescues friends and family from him. And we're going to get into that ending here in a little bit. Um, Through the years, I know there's been some discussion, especially with the horrible remake they did recently. There's been some discussion regarding Freddy's crimes and background. And was he a child killer? Was he a molester or both? Was he innocent? Well, to make one thing clear, Craven himself described Freddy as a child molester and a child killer. The producers wanted that change during the release of the movie because there was a child molester being sought in L.A. at the time, I believe it was. Um, But it's pretty clear from the director and writer that he meant Freddy to be a full-blown, awful person. Well, there was, in the 80s, the whole craze of, like, 
satanic cults and like people child molesters at preschools and stuff like it was like yeah. all over the oh, news yeah we didn't have stranger shows. danger before the 80s right and, so and this what, falls right into that time a frame nightmare of yeah. our culture right yeah Is definitely that this guy's gonna move in our neighborhood hurt our kids and the, after taking the ultimate revenge it wouldn't matter because he would get them when they're teenagers yeah yeah so let's talk about that ending, uh, because I know it can be divisive. Uh, what's dream or reality at this point? Uh, this might come up again in Kill Count. Uh, so as this movie ends, are all four teens and mom alive? Or are they asleep? How much of the preceding film was reality, or how much of the preceding film was dream? Um, I know it can be confusing, and that there's a lot going on with this end. There's a Hollywood explanation for part of it um, that doesn't have anything to do with the story, so we're going to skip that for now. I think the ending could be indicative of the film's effectiveness that the viewer is still questioning as the movie ends, is this reality or is this dream? And I think that can be a credit to the writing and directing around some of the demands of the studio to have the viewer still considering that as the movie ends. And and I mean, here I am, what, 40 years later, and watching that movie and still thinking, okay, is Nancy asleep? Is she awake? How much of this is reality and dream? If it's reality, the movie is breaking some of its own rules, right? Um, but are they alive and being driven away by the Freddy car, or is that all just part of Nancy's dream and she has really lost all her friends and her mom? Um we know Nancy survives and returns if we look ahead at, into part three, uh, but what of Glenn, Tina, Rod, and Mom, if they are in fact alive? What happened to their arcs and characters after this scene? So I mean, they're obviously not alive. Like, I mean, the only way that they would be alive is if she, because she pulled him into reality, so he's in reality now. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. And like, but then why did all the friends, like, obviously she's pulled into Freddy Krueger's world, which is dead. He's dead. And they're in some, like, spirit halfway world. But then they bring her back. I don't really know. She's dreaming. But she's with the dead people in the dream. That's what I thought. Okay, so Ben, see, that's just it. The other per perspective could be she's saved everybody from Freddy and they're about to drive off into the sunset. <clears throat> and when, in fact, Wes Craven wanted a happy ending to this movie and he intended for everybody to come out of it and it all had been a dream and they drove off into the sunset yeah, and be... the studio 100% vetoed that, said, no, we want to set something up and... We got what we have. It would have been a better movie with his ending. It would have been an unexpected movie and like unexpected ending to one, that type of movie. And I would like the movie better, probably. I I mean, I thought the acting. Was I I, li I like the ending. I, I get the confusion. I just and I had not sure I've made up my mind about it yet. Um, but I like the idea that it could go either way. Um, and I. I lean towards Nancy's asleep and somehow this is just another dream or a continuation of a dream because she does come back in part three. Um, and without this ending, would we be set up for the rest of the franchise? Uh, but I have... So one thing that I... I do have a couple, I guess, plot hole issues with this film that I want to talk about. And one really stood out to me a lot this time uh, at this viewing, and that's the nursery rhyme jump rope song. And it puzzles me within the movie timeline. And of course we all know one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Seven, 
to believe that Nancy's parents are responsible for Kruger's death. Okay, so perhaps, I don't know, before she was born, maybe 16, 20 years earlier uh, at the most? Um, typical rhymes develop over a number of years following events that they're based upon. So thinking a little deeper into this, the content of the rhyme, seven, eight, stay up late, nine, ten, never sleep again, doesn't that presuppose a prior dream incident to the one that we are watching in the film? Because the nursery rhyme already exists when the teens that we see start having their dreams. Okay, so I saw it differently. I saw that that all happened with the neighborhood and everything like that the parents have lived there their whole lives and when they were kids kids started disappearing and the people in the neighborhood that's how that's kind of how i took it but also what didn't make sense is like the olden days clothes the nursery rhyme kids were singing in well, yeah, and that's meant to be part of the surreal fantasy reality yeah. dividing so line. So, was I it think. a dream even then? So, the kids, and in a lot of a lot of ways, you can view the kids as being ghostly. And I'm going to get to that here in cinematography because I really like that first shot. But the the nursery rhyme existed because Nancy was singing it in the bathtub. Tina mentioned it when she got out of that car, and that's the first time we see the jump room. She said it reminds me of that nursery rhyme. So yeah. I'm I'm si similar in thinking to you because for me, what inspired those last two lines? It, I'm focusing on those because they're really weird, if not a dream attack or a dream death prior to what we're witnessing. Right. But even before that, the our movie timeline, I think there's room for exploration there, and I think maybe. Wait, what's the line? All of them. I mean. One, a two, nursery rhyme exists for something that happened 16 to 20 years ago? That doesn't jive with me. Okay, and then I, the I just, last few lines have to do with, if I ever sleep again, I'm going to die, and it, the stuff that we're seeing in the movie. So for me, that presupposes prior incidents. You know what? And I think there was a missed opportunity with a recent remake to maybe explore in a prequel sense what happened leading up to some... that thing that you just said made me have and what you said in your introduction just made me have the thought that the whole thing is a dream like the whole entire movie the way because I was thinking about how I said bad acting or like the scenes jump from one another and the conversations are short and weird like you wouldn't just say that one thing to your friend and they walk off and never answer whether they're having a nightmare and how the scenes were like not cohesive. The whole movie is a, someone's nightmare. The whole entire movie, the fact that that dude exists, like it has a nightmare quality. Some of the scenes like are definitely like but I think she's dreaming that all those things happened. And she's, you know, even when they're running through, what's the place where, is she supposed to be in a dream when she's running through that, all the gym and everything, and everything looks foggy and spooky, you know? And those weird kids in their weird outfits with not a speck of dirt on them, they look like angels or dead children like those are the dead children that they're talking about and they're in the dream dead land and she's dreaming the whole thing and it very well could be and that's where the ending kind of can lead to that interpretation of the entire film and yeah. that's one of the questions but again going back to the rhyme uh, I think there's room for exploration there either before the events we see or what actually led up to that the other thing obviously 
Nancy's trap making timeline is very off unbelievably so I'm not going to say it pulled me out of the movie but it kind of did but you know she's saying, saying to her dad you come stuff. over here in 20 minutes and then in those 20 minutes she sets up a house full of Rambo traps um, only in a dream so obviously that's off um, but overall I think the story and script was solid uh, it kept, keeps the viewer engaged and questioning even now you know 30 years later um, so that's wrapping up story and script for Nightmare on Elm Street so let's move on to Hellraiser who are you? explorers in the further regions of experience demons to some angels to others and Hellraiser 1987 written and directed by Clive Barker one hour 34 minutes Box office total of 14.5 million. Hellraiser synopsis. Sexual deviant Frank inadvertently opens a portal to hell when he tinkers with a box he brought, bought while abroad. This act unleashes gruesome beings called Cenobites who tear Frank's body apart. When Frank's brother and his wife Julia move into Frank's old house, they accidentally bring what is left of Frank back to life. Frank then convinces Julia, his one-time lover, to lure men back to the house so he can use their blood to reconstruct himself and escape the Cenobites. So I mentioned this was written by Clive Barker, and it's based on his novella, The Hellbound Heart. I'm going to recommend you read that, especially if you enjoy this movie. Uh, it's a quick, short read. Uh, the opening intro here uh, introduces us to the box, what we will later learn is the Lament Configuration. Uh, Le Marchand's box, whatever you want to call it. Similar to Nightmare on Elm Street, the Cenobites intro is early. Uh, I like that neither film holds back on the monsters. Uh, this film as well plays with a line between reality and fantasy. But here the fantasy is focused individually and originates from another dimension. Uh, obsession drives the character motivation almost across the board in this film, and it's even cyclical as Frank seeks ultimate pleasure and then spends the film seeking escape from what he found. I think Julia, in a similar way, she seeks pleasure of Frank, but also likes having control and pulling the strings. Uh, Julia's an interesting character in this film, and I think there's an argument to be had that she's the main character in this film. Uh, Julia also enjoys being a woman and the control that that can give her, and I think we see it use it, she uses it to her advantage throughout the first half of the movie. Uh, a question that I have here is about the lament configuration itself because it seems harder and more difficult to acquire than to actually solve and summon hell which to me is kind of incongruous but um, I think that that's a little weird it's harder to find it and possess it than solve it uh, when going into the movie we're led to believe you're going to need this knowledge, this obsession, and this dedication to get this, and it's really a push of a button. Uh, the house is made into a character in this film, and I like that. I feel like I, I know the house, uh, and it's not because I've seen the film multiple times. I think it's because the house seems to have a life and an effect on Julia and Larry. In the third act, the house deteriorates and crumbles with Frank's second death, and I think there's a clear connection between the house and Frank, especially when we take into account he was living within the walls and the floors. Uh, the exposition in Hellraiser is mostly provided through Julia's flashbacks, providing history of her, Frank, and Larry, and even the house. This fits well and it feels natural, and this will come up in cinematography because I really like the way they handled the flashbacks. There's a little backstory on the Cenobites, and I think that intrigue pays off. Freddy is a clear evil antagonist. I think the Cenobites are more neutral and ju judicious. Uh, yeah. This leaves Kirstie alive. Uh, there's that cycle of configuration continues with a new seeker. Uh, there's a less ambiguous regarding the main character fate and arcs than Nightmare. Um, and I think this story can also be interpreted as a story of regret, the ultimate careful what you wish for scenario. Uh, I do have an issue where I think there was a little bit extraneous stuff here. It almost felt tacked on. And those are the scenes with Kirstie and her boyfriend and the weird hobo. Uh, 
especially this watch through I thought that those weren't needed they didn't really add much to the film even though the weird hobo turns into the dragon thing at the end and flies off I didn't think that was necessarily needed in the middle of the film um what did you think about Hellraiser I know you hadn't really seen all of it before so Hellraiser in my mind well it first off it reminds me of punk rock another big thing in the 80s and like the costumes and the look of of the Cenobites the look of the Cenobites is like you know you might see it at a hardcore like or dominate like dominatrix or whatever outfits I forget what that's called but um, so you are unaware that the design of the Cenobites was inspired by BDSM clubs? Okay, okay, that's, <laughs> that's what I was looking at. Not so much punk rock, but that kind yeah. of stuff, right? And people putting the hooks. Like, there's actually those people that, not all of them for sexual stuff, but like tattoo and piercings people that put those hooks in them and do that for fun and hang from stuff. So society's nightmare right going back to what he said because that was such a smart quote i mean that people would see this weird stuff and be like oh god those people you know the fear of those people yeah and coming out of the 80s knowing that clive barker's gay and what he was going through um in the 80s and and how our culture was trying to deal with oh, our okay. own viewpoints of sexuality in the 80s and HIV, I yeah. could see how that could be very effective unsettling an audience in 87. It's pretty interesting that he's gay, and I don't need to correlate this or get anything, like, political or whatever, but it's interesting, like, I thought the woman was the most evil character. Lydia was... Julia, yeah. Julia, sorry. Julia was the most evil character in that movie. I mean, the brother was definitely evil, but there wasn't as much depth to his character or, like, built up. But you realize that this woman, like, uses... I don't know. And maybe the box is easy to open because, really, like, the box is a curse, right? Like... Well, and you, it depends, and they do say angels to some, demons to others, so it depends right. on how you view that. But the the thing, interesting thing to bounce off what you're saying is, is Frank is a sadist and a masochist. I'm not sure he's evil. We don't really see that much from him. Where doesn't we do hurt, see it from Julia. She clearly is enjoying what she's doing in this film. But doesn't he hurt or kill somebody in the beginning? or like? No, he's in it for sexual pleasure and gratification. Okay. And he, when he needs to absorb their blood and their bodies to reconstruct himself, yeah, yeah we see uh... him kill kill a guy or two but she's oh, yeah. she's kill she's killing most of the guys and she's enjoying it and there's an argument to be said that julia is the main antagonist here and julia is she's the the evil, the evil force evil in the in the movie yeah she's the evil stepmother she's a user and she's willing to sacrifice innocent people for a sexual thing and in the end maybe even she sacrificed her stepdaughter and it well she was trying but yeah, yeah she, she died was, before then she was trying and what i'm saying is like her low morals or the archetype of the evil mother or the mother that in order to have sexual pleasure would sacrifice a well, she youth said and, that in the film that's right. one of her lines is what yeah Something along the lines of, I'm not just the evil stepmother, I'm the wicked witch, or something. Like, she yeah. says that, uh, something okay. similar to it, That's yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, yeah. wrapping up story and Too script. Too gory, though, I want to say that. Uh, story and script, I gave the 10 to A Nightmare on Elm Street, and followed that with a 9 to Hellraiser. And this will come up in the autopsy, but this, for me, was a real uh, close... Uh, category. So the next category is director and cinematography, and we're going to start with A Nightmare on Elm Street, directed by Wes Craven, who also directed The Hills Have Eyes, Scream, Shocker, among others. Director of photography was Jacques Haitken, 
He also did Witch Wishmaster, Shocker, and A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, some of the takeaways here for me, uh, let's start at the opening boiler room scene with Tina. I really like these overhead shots here. They were used later with Nancy in the boiler room. I thought they gave a good sense of space and perspective uh, where we were seeing these characters and what they were facing. Uh, the color palette throughout the film, there's a lot of reds and oranges. Uh, fire motif is present within the color scheme almost throughout. Uh, it is the mid-80s, so there's a fair amount of denim blue as well. Uh, the edits used effectively within the context of this film tended to be fade to black, and in the context of Sleep and Dreams, they were used really effectively when we witnessed someone falling asleep or fighting dreams, or it was mentioned. Uh, there were also some moving point-of-view shots, particularly through the school hallways, that I thought helped build tension within Nancy's dream. I mentioned it during the story. Uh, early on, there's some contextual foreshadowing, and that's the jump rope scene. Uh, following Tina's first dream and the opening credits, they pull up to the sidewalk in Glenn's car and get out, and we don't see that initially. We see the jump rope girls off to the side, and they're presented in kind of a blurry, foggy, misty uh, shot. And then as it pans over to the left, to the car and, and the teenagers, that shot clears up, clearly bringing us from my perspective from our fantasy of the girls jump roping to the reality of the kids getting in the car so, and that's the first time that Tina says it reminds me of the jump rope song. So does she see the kids? We have no indication that anybody saw the kids. What about the second time the kids show up? Does anyone acknowledge that they see the kids look over at the kids? I don't believe or? so, no. So we don't know if anyone The first time, the definitely not. Yeah. So they also did a great job creating and maintaining the surreal feeling and look of the film. And they did this in a couple occasions through the use of fog and kind of a mist in some dream sequences. And again, for me, at the end, you see that fog come over the front of the house. And that's one of the things that leads me to believe that that's a dream. Uh, there's a floating feather at the window following the bedroom tussle between Nancy and, and Freddie and the shredded pillow. I thought that was a real nice touch to, again, kind of keep the viewer asking the question, is this reality, is this a dream? Uh, and there were some nice sound design contributions there, and we'll get that into the next category. There, of course, are some masterful presentation and execution of just iconic scenes in this film. Uh, a lot of them special effects related. Uh, for me, one of them is that iconic wall scene when Nancy is sleeping over at Tina's. Um, so, when you find out how it's done, it's so incredibly simple, uh, but it to this day holds up and it is so creepy and so well done. And I think it sets the mood for what we're about to head into questioning reality, fantasy, and that dream world. Uh, of course, the bathtub sequence, I thought, holds up really well. I love that scene as well. Uh, the whole opening of this movie for me, and that would be Tina's death sequence, the nightmare in the alley up through the bedroom scene, uh, I just love that whole sequence. Um, and it'll come up again when we get to special effects. But overall, uh, very effective and enjoyable for me. Uh, and again, that's Wes Craven directed, uh, Jacques Haitkin director of cinematography. So let's move on to Hellraiser and director and cinematography. So this was Clive Barker's directorial debut. Uh, he only did one or two other movies. He did Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions. Uh, I know Nightbreed was based on one of his short stories in Books of Blood. I believe Lord of Illusions was as well, but I just have to look that up. Uh, director of photography on this was Robin Vigin. He hasn't seemed to have done much as a DP. Uh, he's done some religious films, one called The Mission and another called King David. Um, and here we are talking about him doing Hellraiser, so <laughs> there's some irony there. Um, the use of light in Hellraiser, I think, is utilized really well. Light and shadow are both used to build atmosphere and create tension, but I think they're also used to communicate fear and anxiety within individual scenes. 
I find it very interesting that the Cenobites are heralded with shafts of light while Frank hides and lives in the shadows. Uh, this film presents us with a lot of soft colors, uh, red, orange, and blue hues, uh, not quite as bright or fiery as, as the color palette in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Early in the first act, there's a really nice transition edit following Frank's death, uh, and I caught it on this watch. I'm not sure I'd picked up on it before, but it really blew me away when I caught it. So following Frank's death, there's a pull away out of the room and you hear something at the front door and it goes down, pulls away and down the stairs to the front door that opens and it's Larry and Julia walking into the house in the present. And I thought that was so well done. It didn't break a single thing in the film, but it brought us ahead in the plot and the story. Um, most of the exposition done here, and I mentioned in the story part, is in flashbacks. Um, I love how they do the flashbacks in this film because it's mostly Julia's flashbacks. Because they happen as memory would. There's no fades. There's no edits. It's just cuts with start and stop points. And yeah. that that's how we get the, the backstory about her and Frank and how the, Larry plays into it, I think, in a bigger sense, the house. But I really liked how they handled those flashbacks, too, because it wasn't like a dreamy fade in or a, a fade to black. They just hit the start point, and when it was end, they jumped out at the end point. So yeah. it, it worked a lot like a memory would, and that's what she was doing. So I really liked that. Another thing that I take away from the cinematography here... The shots moving through the house, for me, really helped make the house feel alive and build it as a character throughout the film. I think this is reiterated a couple times in the film. Uh, there's a point where Julia, it's during a dinner party, Julia's upstairs and finds a picture of Frank with another woman, and she rips that photo in half while simultaneously Kirstie is breaking the kitchen faucet and water spraying everywhere. So to me, that's a clear connection between the house and Frank. Remember that he's living in the walls and the floors at this point. This cuts to Julia's memory of Frank in the rain, so there's another connection between the house and Frank and Julia there. Um, so I really liked how that was done as well. How's he living in the floors and the walls and stuff if he was saying he escaped the Cenobites? Because they don't know where he is. Because he's figured out how to get away from them and he's living in the last place where he was which was the floor of that room that's why when Larry bleeds on him he starts to come back because that's where he's kind of is yeah. think of it almost as a ghost like why would a ghost haunt a place well they where they died or what, what meant a lot to them so can I make a comment about something you said a little bit back though Okay, so you were talking about the guy um, and how he worked on religious movie. Like, what is that guy? Oh, the director for, for, oh, yeah, director of photography, Robin yeah. Vigeon. And I was thinking about how, like, sometimes movies that are horror movies, I seem to think, are, like, trying to teach people that they need God. Or that have, like scenes of hell or like the evil are punished look at these evil people and they're punished and look what hell's full of cenobites or whatever so uh there's a dream sequence that Kirstie has that i think is shot well and does a good job of blurring the line between reality and fantasy uh it helps drive her forward through the remainder of the film uh, there's another scene with Frank, it's during one of the kills, where he tells Julia, don't look at me. And as she turns from the door and the door closes, the camera kind of pans down around to take a peek as she closes the door. And it gives us a good glimpse of Frank and his current condition. I really enjoyed how they gave us that sneak peek. Uh, later in the film, and this came up during our viewing era, and there was... An image of a blossoming red flower, and this popped up in a couple places. One was on a TV, um, and then I know it was on the screen itself. I think it was mirrored uh, in the hospital scene by dripping blood in the IV bag. And this is after Kirstie has woken up in the hospital with the box in her hand. And I 
wondering on this, I think it's really in regards to Kirsty, who's having her mind and soul open to this new reality, while she's also having her young womanhood threatened and uh, put at risk by Julia and Frank. Yeah. So I think, I think that jives with her, you know, she just passed out with a box and woke up, so I think it kind of jives with that awakening interpretation. And again, it's this viewing where I really spent time thinking on that because of course I've seen that before and haven't really given it much thought except hey what does that mean I forgot that that's why the Frank guy is a total evil pervert because of the whole niece thing and how he acts like you know that's why he deserves Uncle Frank yeah that's really (laughs) sick so when I was saying like he's a bad dude too but he didn't really kill anybody no, I didn't say he wasn't bad. I just said he wasn't necessarily evil or as evil as we saw Julia. No, Um, he's worse. He's such a scumbag. Kirstie, it's Frank. It's Uncle Frank. So, and again, this will come up again, but the special effect shots are mostly done well. Concealing and enhancing is needed. Um, So wrapping up director and cinematography for Hellraiser. I gave the 10 in this category to Hellraiser. I followed it with a 9 to Nightmare on Elm Street. So again, these this was another category for me. It really could have gone either way. But ultimately, um, I really enjoyed what Hellraiser did from the director's cinematography standpoint. So we're going to stick with Hellraiser and move right on into score and sound design. The composer for Hellraiser is Christopher Young. Uh, he's also done scores for Sinister, Swordfish, and The Original Grudge in 2004. Uh, This is definitely a more orchestral soundtrack and score than Nightmare. At times, you can tell that it seems more grand. Uh, It does fit the film really well. Uh, There aren't any moments of disengagement or volume issues for me uh, as far as the score goes. This is one of those scores that I can listen to on its own and not really get detracted from the music remembering that it's from this film or that film. the sound design here is, I really enjoyed the sound design in Hellraiser. There's, it's nice and subtle for the most part. Um, there's a POV shot in the hospital hallway, I believe, of Kirsty, where we hear crying babies in the distance. Um, it adds a nice surreal and creepy touch. Uh, the sounds of the house, I think, are used to create some tension through this film. And again, the whole idea of the house becoming a character. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Cenobites because they're so unique that the sound design, I think, is very well done. The voices work well. I think some really good choices there. Uh, the sound design of the few that Cenobites that we don't hear, it, it conveys some of their personality uh, here, especially Chatterer, of course. Um, but I really enjoyed the sound design of the Cenobites and the voice work there is really impressive. Uh, the sounds of violence. There's a lot of squelching and ripping in this movie. Yeah. It works well. Um, yeah, it's a little stomach churning, but it works well. Um, so Hellraiser scoring sound design uh, and moving right into Nightmare on Elm Street. Doesn't need much introduction. You know it when you hear it. Composer is Charles Bernstein. Uh, he also did the score and music for Cujo, Inglorious Bastards, and among others. He's been in Hollywood for a while. Nightmare on Elm Street is just one of those iconic themes and scores. It fits into the film really well. I think in times it really helps build anxiety and tension, especially in some of the chase scenes. Uh, there's The addition of the nursery rhyme ups the creep factor, and for me that's part of that creepy kid vibe. Um, There are a few moments where the volume of the synth and the drums can be a bit much, but it's mostly during those chase scenes, so it doesn't really detract too much. The sound design itself, I think, is great. Uh, Tina's opening with screams and bleeding animals. That's B-L-E-A-T-I-N-G. The bleeding animals, I thought, worked really well. Um, and then Freddy's voice and his, that phantom phantom laughter in that same scene were really well done. Um, I thought that was kind of corny. Which part? The, like, laughter in the background and stuff. Kind of like Carnival Funhouse. But I... 
For the baby crying for the teen girl, like, yeah, that was creepy. Wrapping up score and sound design, I gave the 10 to A Nightmare on Elm Street, and again, a 9 to a Hellraiser. So another category that was just really close. Uh, and I'm not even going to make any qualms about it. It's probably that iconic theme and score that pushed Nightmare over up to the 10 in that category. So our next category is gore, and we're going to start with A Nightmare on Elm Street. This has plenty of blood, no doubt. Tina and Glenn's deaths is nothing but blood. Um, there's some slashing and burning injuries. Tina's death in particular is quite gory, uh, and that's the edited version. Um, outside of that sequence, there's nothing that's too entirely graphic. Uh, there's Freddy's self-mutilation in that opening alley scene with his fingers, his chest. Uh, you know, they pull off his face at one point, but when we put that up against what we're about to talk to in Hellraiser... Uh, there is not a lot of graphic gore in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we're going to move right into Hellraiser, uh, which brings the gore uh, pretty much from the jump. Um, it's pretty gruesome within the first ten minutes or so, and it doesn't really let up. Uh, there's various horrible things done to the human bodies here, all of it on screen, and it almost doesn't matter what makes you cringe, it's in this movie. If it's something as simple as catching your hand on a nail while you're moving a bed up the stairs, that's here. Um, and then we have Frank torn apart by hooks, not once, but twice. Um, so there's a lot of chain and hook quartering, face tearing, yeah, hammer blows, um, all with accompanying blood. Yeah, So. too much. So you agree that the 10 in the category of gore goes to Hellraiser? Yeah, because okay. it's too much. Ew. I don't think it was too much within the context of the film. Um, I couldn't even watch it all. That's how bad. Like, it was just... Again, let's take a breath and get over the, the gore. Mm. Um the 10 in gore goes to Hellraiser, and I followed that up with an 8 for Nightmare on Elm Street. So let's go to special effects. I love these movies and their special effects. Um, I'm going to start with Hellraiser. We just finished gore. Let's stay with Hellraiser. The majority of the special effects in this film hold up really well. Uh, some of it, you can't even tell that it was 1987. Um it's not as groundbreaking as Nightmare, uh, but it's perhaps executed better. Frank's rebirth is still fantastic. Watching it, I see similarities to the transformation in American Werewolf in London. Uh, and I might go as far to say it's on par with that scene. It's really a great sequence. Um, and I love both of those scenes. But there's another scene here, you know, Frank's transition and growth. Um, I think is also done really well and unmistakably tells us what Frank's going through as he's reconstructing himself. But again, here at times, I saw hints of Jack from An American Werewolf in London and how he's visiting Peter as as he's decomposing and or David rather, he's visiting David as he's decomposing and um, you know, it's kind of the reverse with Frank, but I saw a lot of similarities with Frank, so, uh, with American Werewolf here, and I really enjoyed all of it. Um, the special effects with the Cenobite deaths and the Lament configuration, I describe these almost as Ghostbuster-like special effects. Uh, it's a lightning, blue-lit outlines on the box, um... It works. It's not as organic as the other effects throughout the film, but I do think it works, and especially in the context of the uh, interdimensionality of, of the story. Um, the biggest takeaway, not takeaway, the biggest downer for me when we're talking special effects with Hellraiser, we got to talk about the engineer. Um, I think it's meant as an FX centerpiece, and it could be terrifying. But even in 1987, it doesn't look great. It fits, and it doesn't completely fall apart, but I think in an early scene, you can see the rig that it's attached to pushing it down the hallway. Uh, it's one of those effects that 
takes a little bit away from the rest of the movie for me because uh, the rest of the movie is done so well and this is clearly a rubber monster. Um, that being said, it didn't entirely fall apart for me. So, uh, special effects for Hellraiser. Let's jump over to Nightmare on Elm Street. And Aaron, you're welcome to jump in here anytime you'd like. Um, this was 1984. A Nightmare on Elm Street special effects were great for 1984. Mm, yeah, I guess. And it did have that dream kind of like cheesy quality to it, so... So it was a little more believable in the context of the film, yeah. That being said, um, all of it doesn't hold up well. I think this, the effects does a good job of setting up the threats well. Uh, it has some fantastic and iconic moments. Um, here I'm talking, as I mentioned, Tina's sequence, the alley scene, whether it's the extenda arms, the finger dismemberment, uh, the wall bending scene. Tina's death is a rotating room. Um, just a fantastic sequence. Uh, bathtub scene, it was relatively simple, but it increases tension as Nancy is at her most vulnerable. Uh, Glenn's death, the blood geyser, um, you know, a lot of blood in this film. And then the booby trap gauntlet, I thought, was done well, especially for the time. Some of it, particularly, I think, there's a scene with Nancy walking up the stairs where you can see the effects before she steps into it. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's very creative and, and groundbreaking. doesn't necessarily hold up all the time. It doesn't detract anything from the movie for me. One thing I do love about this movie more than the sequels is that Freddy is gross and scary in this movie and I really enjoy that um, and I miss that in, in the next eight or nine movies I guess uh, so wrapping up special effects I gave the 10 in this category to Hellraiser and followed that up with an 8 to A Nightmare on Elm Street and we're going to stick with A Nightmare on Elm Street and get into violence and kill count okay this is where I'll bring it up and violence for category. yeah kill count here for Nightmare on Elm Street well it could be four, it could be one, or it could be none, depending on your interpretation of the ending of this film. <laughs> so, um, does Nancy succeed in bringing all four of Freddy's victims back? And that would be none. Does Nancy succeed in bringing everybody back and then Freddy gets her mom at the end, which would be one? Or did Nancy succeed in nothing and they're all still dead, which would be four. Or all still alive and the whole thing was a dream. Correct. Okay. So, the kill count on this is anywhere from zero to four. And those would be Tina, Rod, Glenn, and her mom. Uh, so, there's graphic violence here. Uh, sliced flesh, uh, a hanging, burning, moderate to heavy violence, just buckets of blood. Um, and But again, the interpretive ending, I think, leaves the kill count ambiguous. And I guess I'll note here, since I don't know where to say this, that here we have a movie where violence, like if you, like the more sexual you are, the more violence it is. And at the end, you have the pure girl who is kind of chase, who's alive at the end or the her heroine but the really the the more sexual the couple the you know the first couple you know what i'm trying to say and i just yep. think that's interesting of yeah yeah one of the stereotypical tropes of 80s films right yeah yeah i, I guess so it's interesting because the, they both, I mean, and they both start with a man, let's say he's a kitty sex pervert, right? Both of the movies, and that's a sexual crime. Every drop of blood you spill puts more flesh on my bones. In a violence and kill count with Hellraiser, the kill count for this movie is six or seven. Again, depending on whether you count Frank's death twice. And I'm going with seven because he definitely dies twice in this movie. Um, so, for me, the kill count here is seven. Uh, as we started getting into with gore and then special effects, there's some graphic and heavy violence here almost from the jump. There's not much held back. 
um, bludgeoning, hook ripping, hands and fingers into skin and bodies, it's all here. Uh, so not only is the kill count higher, I think the violence is more graphic and heavier. Uh, so this one was pretty easy. The 10 in this category went to Hellraiser, and I gave uh, Nightmare on Elm Street an 8 in this category. So continuing with the match, we're going to get into acting. And let's start with a Nightmare on Elm Street here. Uh, this cast, and we all, especially seeing the movie, know this cast. It's a relatively small cast. Uh, also, a lot of inexperience on this cast. They still managed to put together a pretty strong ensemble. Um, but we know this is the first movie for a young Johnny Depp, who is playing Glenn. Um, a, young Lin, a young Lin Shay is brief seen as the teacher in the high school. Uh, veteran John Saxon playing Nancy's dad. Uh, he's always reliable. I thought the acting here it was all right. There were some nice dynamics and characterizations. Uh, it was believable and engaging. Uh, not anything that made me hate any of these characters of this movie. I think they do a good job conveying emotions and thoughts non-verbally. There's a scene early on, and you gotta catch it quick or it's gone. I believe it's in Tina's house before the sleepover. Uh, where they're talking about shared dreams, and Glenn says something counter to what the girls are saying, but before he says it, you can tell by the look on his face that he's having the same dreams they are. Uh, and I thought that was conveyed really well. And there were a few of those. When um, at the cemetery, there's a scene between Nancy's mom and dad, um, John Saxon and Ronnie Blakely. At the cemetery, they're regarding Freddie, and they exchange this look, and it's just a nice way that they convey um, what they're trying to, to tell the viewer without verbalizing it. Um, Heather Langenkamp as Nancy sets a new final girl bar for me in this movie, and it was still early in the slasher cycle, 1984, but it, it's still a high bar to reach at points. Um, but we have to talk about Freddie, of course, Robert Englund. I love him in this film more than any of the others that followed. Again, he's gross, scary, and amusingly threatening. Uh, for me, this original Freddy is the best before any MTV Freddy came along, and we started to see him doing Doritos commercials or whatever. Uh, this Freddy is my Freddy and the one that I fell in love with and will, will always love. Um, so that's a big part of the acting for me in this film. And I don't really have any complaints with the acting in this film. Um, I know Aaron might have some difference of opinion. I don't know, I thought I could have gotten to know some of the other characters more. Instead of, like, these are her friends. and they're. I didn't care enough about them dying. I didn't know them. Yeah, and I could see that. So a little bit more backstory, maybe, or time yeah. with them before. Well, I like that Tina died early, though, because it set the tone. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you don't really need to know them. They are, of course, just like types. Yeah, for the most part. And so we're only talking four people, really. Yeah. And Hellraiser's not much different. It's another small cast, also with some inexperience. Um, my only issue here is with Andrew Robinson, who plays Larry. Sometimes I think he comes off as unlikable and one-dimensional. I don't think that's entirely on purpose characterization. I think part of that's Andrew Robertson is an actor um <laughs> just my opinion um Julia on the other hand Claire Higgins I think does a really nice job um and I think you alluded to this earlier when you said she's the evil one in this movie because she conveys Julia's obsession with memory and living in the past without consideration of consequences and she plays a good villain and She's got some quiet moments where she's conveying, you you feel that evil from her almost, and she's not saying or doing anything except looking at the camera. Um, so I really enjoyed her in this in this film. Well, you see like her weakness too. Like a lot of it is weakness for the manipulations of an evil man because it was good sex. Yeah, and her obsession is her is her weakness, and it ends up costing her her life. Right. I think Ashley Lawrence as Kirstie is strong, um, almost equal to Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and I think there's a template that they took from A Nightmare on Elm Street for part of Kirstie's 
character, and I think Ashley Lawrence does a really good job playing that character. Uh, of course, Doug Bradley as Pinhead steals the show for me. I didn't write the name of his counterpart because she does an equally as good job, but um, Doug Bradley as Pinhead is the one that we all go to the movies to see, at least up until the third one or so for me. Um, I think it's perfect casting and execution for this character. Um, he got this role because he, I believe, had worked with Clive on a stage production in England or something, so they knew each other. Um, but he portrays an elegant, neutral sadist with a job to do, as well as it could be portrayed, I think. Um, yeah. And nobody should ever say that phrase again, now that I hear it out loud. I don't know. <laughs> um, so acting, again, this was another hard category for me, but... I gave the 10 to A Nightmare on Elm Street and followed it with a 9 to Hellraiser. And heading into the um, final stages now, we're going to go into scares, and we're going to stick with Hellraiser. I counted four jump scares in this film. Um, there's some creepy and nightmare-inducing scenes. Um, some of the key, key scares are pretty straightforward. Uh, strange men that Julia's bringing into the house... Um, the pacing of the story is mostly consistent, uh, and I think the scenes with Kirstie and the weird hobo slow it down a bit. Um, but just in general, I had, I didn't have too many scares in this film. I had some tension when I think there's a scene where Kirstie's going to the bathroom and Frank's looking out the window or, or the door and maybe it's Julia and you get this nice tense scene as if they're going to attack her, if they're going to do something to her. And then there's a similar scene later in the film with Kirstie. But other than that, I didn't really have much fear or anxiety in this film. How did you feel about the scares in Hellraiser? It was more gory than that kind of scary. And I think that the gore maybe made up to some people for the scare because it was like so much. Yeah. yeah, and the scene that you couldn't watch had nothing to do with a jump scare or tension. It had right. to do with the gore. So. Yeah, but it was more psychologically scary. Like, is this weird dude gonna, you know, hurt this young girl? Yeah, is this more lady threatening. Gonna let him? It was that whole, yeah, menacing thing. Yeah, about and that might come up movie. in the next category, too, oh, right? Pacing okay. and tension. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I already started with Hellraiser, but... Let's get to Nightmare on Elm Street with scares. Again, I counted four jump scares in this film. Um, I think this does a really nice job of ten tension and anxiety throughout most of the film. There aren't a lot of moments in this film where the foot comes off the accelerator too much. Key moments regarding scares. Uh, Freddy's unknown origin initially and that whole idea of an unknown attacker. I think the concept itself can be scary. Yeah. Um, being attacked in your sleep. Um, Nancy's chase scene, uh, the ringing phone after she tears it out of the wall. I don't know how many times I'm going to see that and predict it. It's always going to creep me out a little bit. Um, and this did it really well. Uh, the high school body bag, se body bag sequence I thought had uh, some nice tense scare moments in it. Um, but when we come down to scares, I gave the 10 in that category to A Nightmare on Elm Street and mm -hmm. followed it with a 9 to Hellraiser. So we're going to head into the last category, which is pacing and tension. And we're going to stick with A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, for me, the pacing and the tension was consistent throughout. It ramps up prior to action and scenes. Uh, the score and sound design contributes to the tension extraordinarily in this film. I think the surreal world building helps create a disquiet or anxiety within the viewer. And some of this is reinforced by the effects, the wall bending scene, Freddy's fiery f footsteps, things like that. Um, and then I think the film ends with continued tension. When we end the movie asking ourselves what just happened or what is real or what's going on, it carries that tension into the credits sometimes. So I think that overall, Nightmare on Elm Street did a really good job with pacing and tension. Yeah, I would agree. And I had started Hellraiser uh, pacing and tension, so again, that's mostly consistent. Here, the, what detracts a little bit for me are those extraneous scenes with Kirstie and her boyfriend and the weird hobo. They slow it down for me a little bit and take me out of what's going on at the house with Frank. 
but the tension does build well throughout scenes, uh, and again, it's broken up within the entirety of the film. Uh, no surprise that must, m much of the tension revolves around Kirsty. you know, she being stalked by Julia on the way to the bathroom, uh, she enters the house during the death of Strange Man number three, and then she's got to deal with the Cenobites when she's trying to return Frank in exchange for her own soul. So there's a good job of ratcheting up the tension around that particular character. Um, but again, I didn't feel it throughout the film as consistently as I did in Nightmare on Elm Street. And that detracted from it for me. So pacing and tension, the 10 goes to a Nightmare on Elm Street. And I gave Hellraiser a 9. Not alone. You solved the box. We came. So let's get into the autopsy for A Nightmare on Elm Street versus Hellraiser. This one was another fun one for me. I love both these films, and I think they paired really well together. Um, I don't have any formula when I pair movies. I just kind of try to pick ones I think will pair well together, and these went together really well, I thought. Yeah, I thought so too. They had a lot of the same like underlying themes. And also, they both had the surreal quality to them, so... Yeah, and I really enjoyed that for both of these films, and I get I got a kick out of watching them back-to-back -back like that, and being able to compare them. Um, so let's sew up A Nightmare on Elm Street versus Hellraiser. Just four matches in, and we have our first upset. Winning the match with five of the nine categories is A Nightmare on Elm Street, taking story and script, score and sound design, acting, scares, and pacing and tension. Hellraiser took director and cinematography, gore, special effects, violence, and kill count. So winning the match with five categories is A Nightmare on Elm Street. The final scores... Hellraiser, 85 points. A Nightmare on Elm Street, 82 points. So our first high score loser is Hellraiser. And I mentioned this once already. It really could have gone either way. Uh, story, script, director, cinematography, those were the hardest categories for me to score for these two movies. And it could have swung to Hellraiser or turned into a landslide and swung to Nightmare on Elm Street. Um... I'll admit Nightmare probably got points for being iconic and groundbreaking, um, but I think Hellraiser earned points because it's a little more advanced filmmaking-wise and some of the special effects. So if you're looking for a break from reality, check out A Nightmare on Elm Street or Hellraiser. Well, I might be dark next week, but please come back to see if I've avoided time loops or if I've swapped bodies with a serial killer when Happy Death Day squares off against Freaky. Ooh. Those are good ones. I'm Matt, the horror matchmaker. Okay. Thanks for listening, and watch more horror.